Welcome to episode 157 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and our usual uh, crew is not here. Uh, uh, instead, uh, for the news roundup, we're going to have Stephen Heifetz, uh, formerly of DOJ, DHS, and the CIA, and now co-chair of Steptoe's International Regulatory Practice, uh, Phil Kinda, uh, who's a partner in our uh, securities litigation and enforcement uh, uh, department, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and the DHS, and the record holder for returning to step to the practice law more times than any other lawyer. So that's going to be our roundup. We're going to ask um, uh, Phil and Stephen to talk about topics we don't usually get to dig into uh, CFIUS, SEC, and cybersecurity. Uh, uh, so that's the plan. Uh, and then we'll turn to our guest interview uh, uh, where we'll have Josh Corman and Justine Bone uh, participating. But first, let's jump into uh, our news roundup. Uh, uh, Stephen uh, uh, worked with me. Uh, he actually started basically DHS's uh, CFIUS practice uh, uh, when both of us were at DHS. Uh, uh, and so you've now lived through three different administrations uh, doing CFIUS. You've just barely started on the uh, Trump administration. Uh, uh, but obviously, President Trump came in making a lot of promises about being more hard-nosed, being a tougher negotiator, etc. Um, uh, what, uh, what is actually the track record of the Trump administration in CFIUS? Where do you think it's... Uh, uh, policymakers are really going. Uh, uh, is it going to be more of the same, or are they really going to uh, make a, a dramatic change in uh, tone or philosophy? A little early to tell, but it, certainly there is the potential for dramatic change. The um, CFIUS has, uh, for decades, operated against a backdrop of an open investment policy that that uh, we want foreign investment and foreign investors are to be uh, treated uh, as other investors uh, unless there are real national security issues. And though national security uh, sounds amorphous, it has operated to tether uh, CFIUS, um, but there is a... Very, very loosely. <laughs> well, uh, but in particular, uh, to rule out certain types of arguments having to do with trade reciprocity or economic security. Right. Uh, and now there is a possibility uh, that CFIUS may begin to consider things like economic security or trade reciprocity, and that would be a, a sea change. For yeah, that would be. I, I think it's it's hard to know. Uh, you know. We're so early in the administration that there's really nobody below the deputy secretary level in most of these places, right. uh, and so what you have is a whole bunch of career folks uh, going in the same direction they were appointed by the last political appointees, uh, uh, and then freelancing a little depending on their own institutional interests. Does that seem right? I think that's right, I, but you can certainly see the career officials uh, worried about taking a significant China case, for example, to uh, a new political official. Who's likely uh, for, just to say, screw them. For, yes, for sign-off. 
given the rhetoric uh, from the campaign and uh, and post uh, post election. So I, I, that sounds right. Uh, it's certainly I will say that the Trump administration has been good for CFIUS lawyering, right? Uh, the, the, both CFIUS itself and the lawyers who do it are just chock a block with work. That's right. The, the, uh, they were on pace for record numbers. CFIUS, the number of filings usually reflects uh, the M- cross border M and A climate, which remains pretty good as well as whether CFIUS is on the radar screen of dealmakers. And certainly uh, CFIUS is on the radar screen of dealmakers. And the Trump risk may be uh, elevating uh, that that place on the radar screen because we are seeing uh, more filing. They're on pace for roughly 300 filings for 2017. So CFIUS is, is uh, uh, benefiting from high T, huh? Uh, that is right. Trump, <laughs> Trump risk is uh, generating a lot of activity. All right. Well, let's let let me turn to Phil Kinda uh, because we're starting to see some activity at the SEC. Although um, there's nobody new at the SEC, we just have rumored uh, a rumored chairman uh, nomination at this point, right? We have a chairman who's been nominated. He's had a confirmation hearing. First of all, Stuart, thanks for having me. Oh, glad to. Uh, and, you know, SEC news, I, I worry now that we're getting to a place where uh, what will happen to folks is what happened to me 25 years ago when I told someone on a flight home from Tennessee, I worked at the SEC, and they said, the Southeastern Conference. <laughs> That's right. And so <laughs> you get me to the 50-yard line. <laughs> so the the concern now is that you're going to have a pro-business chair who in turn will pick a pro-business Enforcement chief. Right. Historically, in, in, in Republican administrations, whether it was Reagan, Bush, and then W, uh, in as much as there was an effort to keep enforcement down, you know, the 80s begat Bosky and Milken. Right. And then after 2001, of course, you had the unholy trinity of Enron, WorldCom, right. Global Crossing. And so time will tell. And by that I mean enforcement people are a self-selected group. You come to bring cases. Right. That's going to be tough now because this year has already been kind of cannibalized by the outgoing administration. They've, they've taken all the good cases. They've, they've, they've settled out. If you look, normally uh, a lot of cases are resolved in September. The federal right. government, as you know, is a September 30 year-end entity. A lot happened in December with the outgoing enforcement chief. So this year is going to be thin. There's going to be a great desire in the coming fiscal year then to bring cases. Now, I will say, for purposes of your sophisticated audience, at the SEC, it's like the 1950s over there in terms of understanding of cyber issues. Mm -hmm. And so, to my mind, if you're a public company, really what you want to say, you know, justice may pursue the people who actually hacked or were involved in the data breach. But at the SEC, you're going to say, look, ours is the house that got robbed. And unless the data is in the trunk of our COO's car, the issues are Not really problem. That's right. It, it, there's perhaps a fraud risk if they were involved, but more likely it's disclosure. It's who said what about when, who knew what, when, and those are the big questions looming right so, now. We, I've been expecting some big failure to disclose uh, uh, investigation for three or four or five years. Uh, the SEC said we expect you to tell us if there's somebody in your system. Uh, and um, there have been people in the Fortune 500 systems ever since, and nobody's done a big disclosure to the uh, SEC, and the SEC hasn't come down on anybody for failing to disclose. Well, I think what the, the challenge in these cases, and I think in a sense it's, a, it's a, a measure of fairness on the part of the SEC, in that 
when you have a breach, and let's say client data, user data is taken, it's not as if you walk into your living room and the furniture is gone. Right. Right. Instead, it's as you have to figure out, I think somebody's been in here and taken pictures of all the furniture. And so what tells you what has changed? And there's certainly investigative risk, what I call mischief risk. Right. Right. You're going to get investigated six ways to Sunday. But at the end of the day, where does the liability lie? Right. Again, the furniture isn't in a truck, right? Right. Behind my garage. The, the pictures aren't, if they weren't involved in the breach, then it's a question of where the controls, and this is where this is starting to morph towards kind of a controls rubric, right. where they all they should have been, and who was aware of what, who appreciated what, when. Bearing in mind, these are, from a securities lawyer perspective, technical issues that they don't fully understand. So we we should expect that they will try to jam cybersecurity into the uh, rubric they already understand, which in many cases is going to be, unless you hid it from the SEC, they don't want to blame you. More or less. More or less. I think that's certainly the position you want to take, which is look, the facts are the facts, but we didn't leave the back door open. We didn't ask for this. We didn't close our eyes to it once we fully appreciated, and that's the trick, once we fully appreciated what had happened. And that's the, that's where the skirmishes are going to be, is what does true appreciation mean? And so I, I, the other thing I guess I see is that this administration is uh, famously deregulatory in instinct, uh, and uh, in, in particular in, in a lot of financial regulation. So... The enthusiasm for being a pioneer, uh, path-breaking, precedent-setting, uh, a new law-making uh, um, enforcer is pretty modest. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, that would argue that uh, if they haven't already gone after people on cybersecurity risk, this may not be the administration, at least until something remarkable happens, that's going to go looking for that opportunity. Right. And I think you've put your finger right on what's going to be the most, for those of us who do this all the time, interesting issue over the coming years in that I think in fiscal 18, with the numbers down in terms of quantitative totals, there's going to be a strong desire to bring message cases that may create a demand Mm -hmm. to break new ground. Sure, we only brought half as many, but look at the ones we did. And so there may be an interest, and this is why I think the investigative risk is very high, because these are sexy, these cases. Yeah. And when you're in the 1950s, yeah, yeah. that rock and roll stuff is hot. Yeah. And so there's going to be a move. Whether they actually do anything, time will tell, and we can maybe kick this off again down the road. Okay. That sounds great. Uh, uh, thanks, Phil Kinda. Uh, uh, Stephen, uh, if you can stick around, I, uh, I know, since you worked at the CIA, I, uh, I feel as though I can uh, uh, talk a little bit about a couple of the uh, actual uh, uh, other cases or other stories of, of the week. And the most interesting one, and the one that I thought was um, most clarifying, was the story that Eli Lake did out of Bloomberg uh, about uh, – what it was that Devin Nunes actually looked at and why he thought it was important to, and to, to listen to, uh, to read the Eli Lake story, which just came out today. Um, what he looked at was something that indicated that a lot of people in the uh, Obama White House and uh, Susan Rice in particular uh, unmasked 
dozens of identities from intelligence reports on conversations between foreign nationals and members of the Trump team. And, and uh, essentially that uh, uh, she was showing a remarkable degree of curiosity about who was saying what on the Trump team to foreign governments uh, and foreign representatives who were the subjects of scrutiny. Uh, and that um, if I gather a lot of these records were only on National Security Council uh, computers, so he had to go over there to look at them. Why he couldn't have said some of this stuff uh, and spared himself two weeks of agony, I don't know, but uh, um, this this makes sense, and it makes sense, I'll, I'll ask you, I know this is a strain, to put yourself in those shoes of Republicans uh, who took Trump's complaint about surveillance not literally but seriously saying is there evidence that the Obama administration was subjecting the uh, Trump campaign to undue scrutiny using intelligence uh, uh, capabilities and from that point of view this is evidence that maybe that was happening uh, and uh, it would explain why Nunes was eager to see it and uh, why the Republicans might think it was relevant um, uh, although you know, it, it it doesn't have anything to do really with whether there was surveillance on Trump Tower. Yeah, it won't surprise you to uh, know that I uh, view this, like many others, as a as a distraction and, and a foolish uh, distraction. Uh, really, nothing to do about the investigation of the uh, Russia activity, nor the allegation uh, that Obama specifically uh, tr- uh, tapped. Trump, which everybody now knows to be false. The the um, fact, if it is uh, correct, that uh, the national uh, that that Susan Rice would have asked, who are all these people who are talking? I want to know who it is who's talking to the Russians. Uh, doesn't strike me as surprising in the least. I think uh, had the national security establishment uh, professed no interest in that, that would have been quite bizarre. Yeah, I'm not sure these were just Russians. In fact, Nunes said that they were mostly not Russians. So this is this is more. There's a regular intelligence collection on uh, foreign agents of all sorts. They obviously were doing their best to find out what was happening in Trump world. Uh, and uh, Susan Rice was arguably kind of riding free on their intelligence collection by reading what they were uh, reporting or saying uh, to Trump world. I, I don't know. We know that it, that it doesn't have anything to do with the Russians. My understanding is that this arose out of that, that the reason for the focus on the Trump campaign was because of communications with the Russians. And the concern was who's who's talking to them. And the fact that uh, some of the communications may not have had to do with communications with Russians is not surprising. But that I, I it's just my understanding was to. Uh, impetus for the request. So I, I think what this probably tells us is there will be a continued focus in this investigation on both sides of the Hill into the question of is there room for abuse when you do an investigation of efforts to influence our elections? And obviously you have a, a dog in that fight. I, oh, and is the unmasking mechanisms, which I frankly are 
completely the same as they were when I was there in 1993, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, whether somebody should take a closer look at that, uh, um, NSA does insist on people taking personal responsibility for getting unmasking information, uh, which is probably valuable uh, if you think people um, worry about having to uh, respond to later investigations. But clearer, Susan Rice is going to get to explain this to the uh, 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 two investigating committees. That may be. Um, of course, there's potential for abuse in any investigation. There's no indication that there's been abuse with respect to this investigation, uh, the, the but I think you, I think you can assume, and, and I've done this this uh, talk, that if the shoe were on the other foot and it were uh, Trump running against uh, Elizabeth Warren in 2020, uh, and there were allegations that the Iranians wanted uh, uh, Warren to win. Um, you might there might be a certain amount of unease on the Democratic side about what kind of investigation was going on and what kind of unmasking was occurring. Uh, it, uh, I, I think this is a bipartisan. A, it's a every four years the shoes on the other foot. Is my guess. Well, I think in this case the the uh, there, again there's potential for abuse and uh, trying to. Uh, minimize that that risk uh, is in everybody's interest, but this is being used at this particular time uh, as a distraction. It seems to me, uh, with respect to uh, the Trump's uh, sort of uh, Trump's lie as to the Obama wiretap and the broader uh, investigation about uh, communications that Trump. Can- campaign had. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, you know, it, it, was it a lie? I, did, he, did he know he wasn't wiretapped? No, he had a, he had a basis for saying it. He was wrong, uh, is a fair way to put it. Uh, and uh, one man's distraction is another man's scandal, as we've all come to learn in the last uh, uh, 10 years. Uh, but um, let's, let's jump back to uh, a quick review of the news. There's a WikiLeaks dump a third one touches on the CIA. The, the initial study, uh, uh, reports suggest that maybe it provides um, information that could be used to identify uh, CIA uh, intrusions in the future, that, or indeed people going back and looking at uh, the source of intrusions. Uh, um, that's... Um, uh, I'm a little skeptical. I always think that these early WikiLeaks uh, returns suggest uh, maybe more newsworthiness than is actually there. But Nick Weaver will be on, I think, next week. We'll ask him what he thinks of the implications of this WikiLeaks uh, um, uh, dump. The other thing that I think is significant, but whose significance I'm not yet prepared to understand, is uh, Google has whacked the hell out of Symantec for issuing uh, uh, certificates uh, or allowing its partners to issue certificates that uh, uh, shouldn't have been issued because the Certificates were issued to people who didn't actually control certain domains. Um, it's a big deal. It's a big financial penalty that Google is just assessing in its role as keeper of the um, the sanctity of certificates. A uh, lot of security people happy to see that. Uh, I, I can't help thinking that there's two sides to that story, uh, uh, but uh, right now it looks as though uh, uh, there could be a pretty big penalty for the per- handling certificates in a way that Google and most people think should not have been, uh, they should not have been handled. Uh, let's see. Um, 
BuzzFeed, uh, uh, somebody suing BuzzFeed uh, actually made a filing that said uh, six ways that BuzzFeed's lawyers have misled the court. Uh, you won't believe number two. And we have a picture of a kitten, uh, which I thought was a, a great way of reminding the judge uh, uh, why BuzzFeed was was, was in litigation. Uh, uh, let's see. What else? Jim Comey has a Twitter account uh, by all accounts. Uh, uh, it's called at Project Exile 7, uh, uh, and it was a persuasive story uh, uh, breaking that. Um, Trump there tweeting from an iPhone. And Trump, yes, Trump has, uh, after saying, let's boycott them, he has turned around and uh, uh, supported them. I don't know whether that means he's forgotten or given up on uh, punishing them for their uh, end-to-end encryption policy and refusal to cooperate with law enforcement, or whether he's decided that uh, they're mad at Jim Comey and so is he, so I might as well buy their product. Uh, uh, Very interesting. Uh, Let's see. um, I think that's all I see in any other stories that you wanted to talk about. All right. All right. Well, then let's turn to our interview because I think it'll be uh, fascinating. We don't usually do two-person interviews, especially with two people who have divergent views, but uh, um, uh, our guests today do have somewhat divergent views, and I'm going to try to explore just how divergent it is. Uh, Josh Corman is the director of Cyber State, of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative for the Atlantic Council, uh, uh, runs a website called I Am the Cavalry, uh, uh, and is a longtime uh, commentating, commentator on things cybersecurity. Justine Bone is the CEO and director of MedSec, uh, which is a cybersecurity company devoted to analyzing quality and security of technology solutions in medical devices and healthcare industries. Uh, MedSec is also uh, uh, involved in litigation, where I'm uh, uh, advising uh, Justine and the company uh, uh, as a matter of fair disclosure, uh, and we'll, we'll touch on that as we get deep into it. But what I wanted to start out with was asking the question, just how good or how bad is cybersecurity for medical devices? These are the implants that, that uh, uh, drip uh, uh, insulin into diabetics or that uh, keep uh, heart uh, 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 hearts that have timing issues uh, uh, on track or if they um, actually fail can give them shocks like an internal defibrillator. There's a whole host of uh, medical devices, many of them inside our uh, bodies now, uh, which are increasingly uh, – turned into IoT devices with uh, uh, wireless connections so that they can report back on what's happening and so that they can be updated and modified uh, uh, without uh, another operation. Uh, and the question is, uh, are they as good or as bad as the cybersecurity on uh, IoT doorbells and uh, uh, cameras? Uh, and um, uh, what should we do about it? So, Josh, let me start with you. Uh, uh, how good is cybersecurity on medical devices? Well, first, thanks for having me on. Um, I would say cybersecurity in medical devices historically is nowhere near good enough. It's uh, pretty disturbing um, what the current state or the legacy state of safe design, threat modeling, implementation has been in clinical medical devices and implantables. Um, so bad, in fact, that that's one of the primary reasons 
almost four years ago, we founded IamTheCavalry.org at DEF CON, um, where we did a call out to medical device researchers and concerned white hats to say, if you're concerned about where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood in our hospitals or medical equipment or automobiles or connected infrastructure, the Internet of Everything, we need to be a voice of reason, a translator, ambassador, a teammate, and lead with empathy to try to fix what had been a stalemate. We had had several great researchers, Dr. Kevin Fu, Barnaby, um, Jay Radcliffe, report issues, but they kind of hit brick walls in a community that wasn't ready, including the FDA, to really take the issue seriously. So, I mean, uh, I share Justine and others' concern that we have some very, very bad historical choices, and we're trying to bend that arc of history to get from current state to desired state. Yeah. Uh, Justine, what's, what's your take on this? You also watched the, uh, uh, some of these uh, uh, developments. Uh, is this a culture clash? Is this a, uh, 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 just a refusal to acknowledge problems or a, a kind of uh, uh, everybody in the medical uh, device area has been looking in a completely different direction? Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me, Stuart. I, I agree with Josh um, that, you know, when it comes to medical devices, you know, the, the state of the art is nowhere near good enough. Um, we can understand why fairly easily this is an IoT subset and, you know, in the rush to connect these devices and automate, you know, processes with sort of deployed features before thinking about the implications in many cases. But, of course, with medical devices, we need to hold folks to a much higher standard when it comes to security. So, you know, standards are varying out there, and a lot of what we see is, um, you know, you, you hear folks in the security industry say, well, there's no, there's no such thing as a secure device. There's always going to be some kind of a problem. And to a certain extent, okay, we can accept that. But a lot of what we focus on is, well, how difficult is it really to break these things? And unfortunately, in a lot of cases right now, it's just far too easy. Um, why is it easy? Well, I think one thing that we could explore is this concept that we talk about a lot in industry called security by obscurity. Um, you know, historically, a lot of these devices were not connected. They weren't digitally reachable. And to a certain extent, for your everyday researcher, it was pretty hard to get your hands on these things to, to take a look at them. And that's slowly changing. These devices are becoming connected, and that increases what we call the attack surface. So now, you know, the bad actors out there and the research community can access these devices more easily and start to understand, you know, the security um, resiliency or lack thereof. Yeah, I can see how um, you could go from thinking it's uh, it's good luck to thinking it's a strategy to try to keep your devices out of the hands of security researchers. Uh, um, but you know what we've learned from from the last few years is that the most aggressive and enthusiastic uh, hackers are governments, and they're pretty unconstrained in what they're willing to do with this. And I can't believe that uh, a policy of trying to lock up devices so that they can't be explored works if your adversary is the government. Well, Stuart, you know, I think we should be careful about um, projecting their postures onto this. I think um, there's a series of things. One thing that I, most of the people in this debate forget is that, and I'm not going to become apologist for the medical device community. So I want to say that right up front, but mm -hmm. to explain and not excuse. Um, it takes, depending on the type of device, it takes 
you know, six plus years to get from a concept through R&D, through clinical trials, through FDA approval process. So many of the things coming to market today were designed, built, and implemented six years ago or sometimes older. Oh, my and God. And if you changed it, if you, if you, can I just stop? If you change the code, do you have to start over? There's processes for that, and I think we, when we talk about some of the FDA guidance in the last two years, we can touch on some of that. Mm-hmm. But just to, to frame this in historical context in, in, very briefly, um, there was a period of blissful ignorance where no one thought anyone would ever hack these things. Right. And Justine alluded to it as well. There was very little remote attack surface for a while. When they got the harsh wake-up call from Dr. Kevin Fu's early work and Barnaby and Jay and others, then they went into the denial mode that Katie Missouri often refers to in the set, you know, five stages of vulnerability disclosure grief. <laughs> and, you know, the, in their math, their physicians, most of the people involved in the regulatory are former physicians, and they said, well, these things save way more lives than the theoretical attack until there is proof of harm was the term. You know, we have more time to figure this mm-hmm. out, and these on the whole – save more people. But I think um, that I call that the before times, and there's empirically zero FDA guidance on cybersecurity. That changed in 2014. They came out with the pre-market guidance for connected medical devices, which mm-hmm. is the expectations you must clear before bringing a brand new device to market. Uh, that was final guidance in late 2014. In 2015, they did a, a very stunning precedent that made it a board-level issue. They did the first-ever safety communication, essentially a recall of a medical device uh, with zero proof of harm. It had an unmitigated pathway to harm in the Hospira bedside drug infusion pump series, Mm -hmm. and that had serious financial um, wake-up call. Nearly every board of every medical device manufacturer realized they had to stand up a lot straighter, and it was a fairly bold move because their post-market guidance hadn't been drafted yet. And then in January of last year through the end of last year, they did the post-market guidance, which is their expectations and interpretation of what you need to do when vulnerabilities are disclosed to you. Um, and it was a fairly aggressive posture last January that sent many of the device makers freaking out, and they ultimately settled on something a little bit more reasonable. But until that trinity, there were a bunch of decisions made in the past in a vacuum out of ignorance now in all seasons. There are some bad actors for certain, but many of them just thought this wasn't an issue. Or as they started to learn about it, now we're in that, you know, couple year period to six plus year period where people are acting on the guidance that exists and there should be zero excuses at this point for someone, you know, skipping those. And I think, again, not an apologist. This is later than I want and less than I want. I yep. think there's still more to do even on the guidance, but um, I don't think there were deliberately bad actors and when they are specifically bad actors they they should be called out as such so they you, what, what you the picture you're painting is the uh, industry started out fat dumb and happy the way everybody does when they um, uh, are uh, digitizing their product uh, uh, they don't think there's a problem until somebody shocks them with the news that that, that their code isn't perfect uh, and that that has been something that the industry has discovered in part because the FDA has finally woken up to the issue and has taken some action to say, you know, we treat it seriously and just because nobody's been harmed yet, we're not going to let you um, refuse to uh, 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 recall a product uh, uh, if the cybersecurity hole is bad enough. Is that fair? Yeah, the... Um 
initially the FDA, I would say my experience was they erred on the side of the clinicians and the, and the um, life-saving side out of familiarity. But around the time of the Hospira investigation is when they started to get religion and they started to ask much better questions and they started to engage the white hat community in, in earnest. And uh, it's interesting that we started work to make cars safer almost a calendar year before we started to try to work with the FDA, but the FDA uh, eclipsed the progress that the automotive regulators did. So in many ways, we're pretty happy that they got, we're not happy they got a late start. We're happy how quickly they evolved and adapted, um, despite their late start. Well, that's, I, I, you know, I think that's, that's right. And yet my perception is that the industry has embraced, the, the, the automotive industry has embraced security, um, uh, more enthusiastically or at least more in keeping with what we expect from computer companies than the medical device guys. Uh, you know, many of, or at least some of the manufacturers have started to offer bug bounties uh, in the car industry. If you can show that you can hack their car, they'll pay you, I don't know, $25,000, $50,000 and then hire you probably to uh, to do research. Uh, I Certainly, MedSec's experience was not that St. Jude gave them a bounty uh, for finding security holes in their in their product. In fact, hey, we, 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 before we shift to St. Yep. Jude's, um, we you know we do work with auto and with um, medical and other safety uh-huh. industries. If you have a list a listing of all the coordinated vulnerability disclosure programs, I can give you a link for your show notes if you like. Good. But uh, is that there's uh, actually only three auto manufacturers to date to have them. There's significantly more medical device manufacturers that have them. The key difference I was referring to is most of those are voluntary enlightenment from the 20 or so car companies as opposed to regulatory uh, courage, I guess. Right. Okay. So what you're saying is there are some medical device manufacturers that actually have embraced bounties, but not everybody. And that's true in cars as well. Yeah. Yeah, okay. we have a listing of them as well. Siemens, so, Philips, Medtronic, Drager, GE, a bunch more. So the the I, I want to look a little at the economic incentives for um, finding secu- for doing security research. One of them is the bounties, but that's a relatively late uh, experience. Another has been, you know, if you um, do a compelling piece of security research on a product uh, uh, and find a lot of holes, uh, it often means that uh, you establish a reputation as somebody who really understands how to do cybersecurity on uh, uh, the particular devices that you are looking at, and that can lead on to uh, um, a, a new research contracts and the like. Uh, um, it, it didn't see that that didn't seem to be working very well in the medical device uh, area. Uh, and uh, what MedSec did, I guess, is a, a an alternative approach, which is uh, to actually work with a uh, short seller who, when they found a serious problem, was able to announce that uh, uh, they thought the stock was going to go down and they were short the stock because of the cybersecurity problems. Um, uh, Justine, do you want to talk a little bit about why you – took that approach and uh, uh, what the reaction's been? Sure, yeah. Well, we we enjoyed working with Muddy Waters because of the exact reason that they have a very um, large platform upon which to announce um, bad practice for various reasons, various types of companies. So when we partnered with Muddy Waters, 
we really wanted two things to happen. And they, these things were not going to happen with traditional vulnerability disclosure models. We wanted a reaction from St. Jude and the authorities and the FDA uh, so that these problems would actually be recognized and acted upon. And we wanted to highlight these issues for the customers, in this case, doctors and patients, to help push this forward so that we can actually allow the customers, the doctors and the patients, to make informed decisions, especially in the interim, while um, St. Jude was, you know, hopefully acting upon receipt of, of this information. So, you know, we we specifically looked at Muddy Waters as an opportunity, as a platform, if you will, to um, make issues known publicly without, I might add, disclosing details around the underlying vulnerabilities. So, you know, it, 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 it was an unusual circumstance and it took some unusual measures to sort of kickstart things into action, but that's exactly what happened. Thank Jude, now Abbott Labs did sit up and take notice. And we have extended the conversation to the customers, to the doctors, and to the patients. So, um, so far, so good. So, I, the, you know, getting the patients involved um, sets off a set of uh, antibodies. Uh, you know, that, that sounds like exactly what you do in most uh, computer security research. You, you tell the end users that they have a problem and the end users uh, either fix it themselves or bring pressure to bear on the company to uh, uh, to fix it. Uh, um, but, you know, I have to say, and, and uh, Josh, you may not share my prejudices, but uh, uh, my sense is that doctors' views and the FDA's views, probably because there are so many doctors there, of patients is very different. They they tend to think of them as, uh, well, ignoramuses who are prone to panic and who have to be cosseted at every turn uh, and maybe a lot of information kept from them. Uh, I, I, now, that's, that's based on my experience in government dealing with the FDA. Uh, they just don't have any faith in providing information to customers uh, because of their fear that customers will do irrational things. Uh, yeah, I think that's a generalization, and it kind of depends on who's in charge at any given time. Um, the the part of the FDA that has jurisdiction here is, has been incredibly engaged, spends a lot of time at security conferences with security researchers. Uh, again, that's a semi-recent development, right, the last two years, but... They've been commuting publicly. Oh, no, no, I understand. There's other uh, multi-stakeholder things we've done, like CyberMetrics with patients, with people like Marie Mo, who's both a security researcher, PhD in crypto, former Norwegian CERT director, and herself has a pay, uh, pacemaker. So there's definitely multiple stakeholders involved in these um, these efforts. But um, yeah, I mean, I think when you're holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So they traditionally initially took a, a more physician's eye view, uh, not to call patients stupid, um, but their general belief, if I characterize it differently, is that um, these devices save lives and if people have an irrational fear um, and avoid using them or trusting them, um, they might harm their care or their longevity. They want accurate info. And sometimes, this is my criticism of that community, is their desire to get accurate info may delay um, the investigation. So in security terms or networking terms, you're going to fail open or fail closed. Um, but they definitely have a, a pedigree to get ground truth, validate things, make sure 
things are calmly and quietly communicated to physicians and patients before the public spectacle. And that's one of the reasons that triggered an antibody response from many of the stakeholders was um, they felt caught on their heels and uh, and hampered in their ability to do what they believe is their taxpayer-funded job to do. Um, so without moralizing any of it, I, I, again, I don't think, I think no one's the villain in their own story. I think their predisposition is let's get ground truth. Let's assess damage quietly. Let's communicate it to patients and physicians in an orderly fashion as they're expected to do. Uh, and this one really threw them off. Yeah. And, and they did not, they clearly struggled to figure out what they should do, uh, because they got this information in August and, uh, finally, um, took some action to effectively recall at least some portion of the code in January, if I remember, remember right, uh, um, which is, a, pretty long time to have the information and it looks as though they were waiting to have a complete fix that they could announce at the same time they announced the uh, the vulnerability. Uh, that's not their stated criteria, um, which I can explain at some point, um, but um, it did certainly take longer than their stated pathway, I think in part given the lawsuits and the spectacle. Um well, why would the lawsuit? It's very, very careful to note here that the most significant vulnerabilities do still remain unaddressed. I think there's that for whatever reason, a lot of folks have been led to believe that that um, announcement that came out in January from both St. Jude and the FDA, as well as the DHS, that addressed one um, one of the many vulnerabilities that we found. It actually wasn't even in an implant. That vulnerability was in an at-home monitoring system. The vulnerabilities, the most significant vulnerabilities are in the implants themselves, and they remain unfixed at this time, seven months later. So whilst there has been some action that is a good thing, we're, we're not done yet. Yeah, and that is one of the things I think is incredibly unfortunate is um, there. It's, it's very unclear to the public what the current state is or has been at a given point on this. And... Um, I completely agree, Justine, that people should not consider this thing fully closed yet. Only only response, only public response is made to a subset of their findings. Right, exactly. And so I think that this is um, one of the challenges that we face when it comes to policy around vulnerability management and disclosure. Um, yes, coordinated disclosure is a useful vehicle some of the time, but not all of the time. And similarly, you know, bug bounty programs, you're very useful, but we can't be, for example, if you, if you look at medical device manufacturers and if we were to propose that, you know, bug bounty programs might sort of address this problem, well, I would be very worried about a manufacturer that becomes dependent upon a bug bounty program, um, in part because of the lack of availability of these devices. It's one thing to have a um, company's infrastructure in part protected via a bug bounty program or company that offers its product a SaaS solution that pretty much anyone can get their hands on um, and can, you know, problems when identified can be fixed very quickly and simply. Uh, that's quite a different scenario to a device manufacturing industry where there is uh, limited availability of these devices and, you know, something like a bug bounty program would hamper the research community's ability to contribute to that. At the same time, both of those programs um, traditionally have been a two-way Conversation between a researcher and a and manufacturer and, you know, built on several assumptions, including responsible response times on the part of the manufacturer. 
So this is, I think, an area that we need to um, recognise that needs to be addressed in terms of transparency toward toward the customer, toward the end user, in this case, the, the doctors and the patients, because, you know, these folks should not be confused. Um, they should be informed about risks associated with the technologies upon which um, their therapy is dependent. There's, um, I mean, this, why don't I explain the way the the front door is designed on a go-forward basis. So last year, they went from the draft guidance in January, I think it was January 19th, through a formal comment period, and then the final guidance was issued uh, at the end of the year, in December. But the oversimplified version of the regulatory posture of the FDA towards vulnerabilities in the for cybersecurity and medical devices is essentially they expect, and this is my paraphrasing, but they expect all device manufacturers to have a coordinated vulnerability disclosure process to accept vulnerabilities from researchers. Uh, they expect that as long as it's not being attacked in the wild, that they're giving that they also want you to participate in what's called an ISAO, Information Sharing and Analysis Organization. Uh, and if you respond to your issues reported to you within 30 days and have a permanent fix within 60 days, then you don't get a corrective action. So essentially it's a carrot-shaped stick that gives them time to receive, triage, respond to, and fix. Uh, and the, if you go outside the parameters of that, either with no response or it's an attack in the wild or you fail to get it done in the time frame, uh, you essentially get the treatment that the Hospira precedent was the prior summer before there was formal guidance, which is you'll get a corrective action like a recall. And the, what that essentially sets up for researchers is you've got a front door welcome mat um, to report, and you can't get ignored for more than 30 to 60 days, um, there'll be an action from the regulator of record. That's their claim. Um, I saw that uh, exercise with a Johnson & Johnson disclosure from Jay Radcliffe uh, in a parallel time frame with, um, with the St. Jude's uh, case that we're discussing now. But I think that will be put to the test as you see more bugs found in more difficult situations um, that are harder to remediate, especially if the device is, is uh, not well-poised for remediation. So that was being developed in parallel with this case, right? Um, you had already had the Hospire precedent and you had the draft guidance, but it wasn't well-known. So without, you know, um, judging anyone's character, which is, I think is an unfortunate part of this story is everyone's getting into opinions about character, I think we now have a clearer blueprint of at least a front door. And as long as it's put to the test, in theory, no device manufacturer will get away with something for more than 30 to 60 days once disclosed. I do think, and I empathize, and I have always empathized with the fear that some researchers have about using the front door at a device manufacturer. We have seen cases where device manufacturers act badly. They do gag orders. There's a case of Volkswagen doing that to some researchers. Uh, and as such, people like Billy Rios don't ever go to a device manufacturer, but they have always gone to someone like a DHS ICS cert or now an FDA um, so that it can be uh, triaged by, again, the taxpayers' uh, resources that are tasked with this kind of thing. And I'm stating a preference um, that that front door tends to trigger less, to use your phrase differently, less of an antibody response. And in theory, it should never take more than 30 to 60 days. So one of my lingering concerns is, let's, you know, how much has that been tested? And if the FDA is going to... Um, follow through on that process. I'd like to see that more aggressively. But, um, 
you know, I, one of the things we didn't mention in my bio is I serve on the Health and Human Services Task Force. It's a one-year task force as part of the CISA law that passed for Computer Information Sharing Act. And uh, that has 20 very diverse stakeholders. So this this clearly came up often in our monthly long meetings and our weekly short meetings. Um, and just watching the reactions to the trust and attitude towards researchers was, was a pretty material change. So while I'm expressing a preference, um, if we're trying to build trust and bridges between these communities who don't yet have that trust network, um, they seem very willing to try the FDA, DHS route. They seem very concerned about um, trusting uh, with more um, public or stock-involved routes. It doesn't mean they're right or wrong. It just means um, if we're trying to bend the arc of history and accelerate how quickly we have more defensible, reliable, trustworthy devices, uh, bug bounties are useful in finding out past flaws are useful, but some of the more more useful and more aggressive gains come from the more secure architecture design, threat modeling, helping them avoid really bad design assumptions and, and whatnot. So the really substantive work comes from trust. Um, and my big fear at the beginning of this wasn't that anyone was a bad person. I, I have a lot of respect for a lot of the researchers involved. Justine and I are both former ISSers, ISS alumni, but um, it's more a matter of on a strategic lens with ten, you know tens of thousands of device manufacturers building trust one relationship at a time. The sensational ones tend to dominate the conversation, and the policy front doors tend to be um, the ones that get the default behavior more often than not. Do you think that the FDA ought to, ought to say that they don't think it's constructive to stu- sue people who in good faith disclose uh, 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 vulnerabilities? It seems like that would be yeah, in fact, um, an early stage. I, I really... I really hope there's a post-mortem on all this as well because nobody – it's interesting. I, I think in a lot of cases like this, people choose a side, right? I'm on the side of MedSec or I'm on the side of Muddy Waters or I'm on the side of St. Jude's. Most of the people in this community um, have criticisms of pretty much every player. So some of the ways St. Jude's handled it, their peers are not happy with. Some of the ways the FDA um, handled it, um, people thought they'd apply this 30-60 day, didn't realize they needed – couldn't take regulatory action based on contested hearsay or whatnot until they got ground truth. So there's, there's criticisms to log pretty much everywhere. Um, but instead of like looking at past failures, I would like to turn these into a postmortem, a blameless postmortem, just like you do at hospitals and say, look, we didn't, not everybody knew about the, the courting disclosure push. Not everybody knew about the post-market guidance. Very few people knew that Hospira uh, had already gotten the attention of board members, um, not just security teams. And if we treat this situation properly, no one, it's not about what people did in the past. It's about what's the most sustainable and fruitful way to get to drive patient care and improvement in the future. So if I look at the, at the, patient trust. go ahead. Go ahead. Justine. And patient trust. I think the other thing to note here is that you know, vulnerabilities are not always going to come through the front vulnerability management door as you know, Josh and I both know well. Um, vulnerabilities can come from anywhere. So obviously there need to be fairly extensive internal programs inside of these manufacturers to respond accordingly, regardless of how a vulnerability came to light. Um, I would hate to think that everyone was sort of moving forward on this assumption that just because a you know, coordinated vulnerability disclosure and response program exists, that the vulnerability is going to come to light via that mechanism. We all know there are alternative markets out there, on the dark yep. web, for example. 
And yeah. some of these will just emerge in the wild as well. So um, the exactly. sad truth is many of these organizations yeah. historically had no capacity. So forget the disclosure program. You have to have the back end that can even handle it. Exactly. Um, I think that, yeah, I do think that is changing. Um, and but, just a, a minor point, maybe we agree on this, maybe we don't. Um, through the NTIA, U.S. Commerce Department spent a year and a half of public convening on best practices for coordinated vulnerability disclosure programs. And we had a safety critical working group where one of the realizations we got from working with a lot of these regulated and safety critical industries is because they were relatively new to this space and being software companies, um, they some of them experienced a, a severe um, mistakes when they rushed straight to a bug bounty before they had the capacity to handle it. So a lot of them start with simply saying, we will not sue researchers. If you follow the following guidelines, you'll see that pattern in what General Motors did um, Johnson and Johnson, a bunch of others, is they start with a "we won't sue you" olive branch, and then over time, as they build capacity and confidence, they start using cash incentives to direct and steer and aim that. So usually, stage one, at least for safety critical, is turning out to be um, just a covenant with researchers not to sue, as opposed to seeking a high volume of low quality bugs. Um, they want to get good at handling any bugs. I want to go and back. Work with professionals. I want to go back to a little bit to what Justine said about uh, uh, the alternate ways in which these bugs are going to be found. Because, as as you heard from my earlier remarks, I I think that's a real worry that uh, uh, governments who want to use um, potentially fatal flaws in the cybersecurity of devices uh, uh, for either extortion or just to kill off people they think are inconvenient. Uh, I uh, could do that for a pretty long time, especially the, the, the fatal attacks, before anyone would think to look to see whether there'd been a hacking problem at all. We, we might have five years of attacks by the, uh, the FSB on uh, people they found inconvenient uh, before we even realized there was something suspicious about the pattern of deaths, wouldn't it? Yeah, and uh, when we when the cavalry first engaged the FDA, we we had a five star cyber safety framework for connected vehicles. We ended up making one that was more familiar to their language. We call it the Hippocratic Oath for connected medical devices. And the ba- these are essentially basic primitives to prepare the industry for failure. And without going into all the gory details on them, the idea was step zero is all systems fail, so you should have five postures towards failure. And they're essentially Tell your customers all the things you do to avoid failure. Tell researchers you'll take help avoiding failure without suing them. Number three is the key one here. How do you capture, study, and learn from failure? Number four was how do you have a prompt and agile security response to failure? And number five was how do you contain and isolate failure? And one of the things we pointed out that convinced the FDA to finally do the Hospira uh, recall or safety communication is what they called it, was the prior assumption was you needed proof of harm. And we we basically gently and diplomatically, uh, we were patiently impatient, but we pointed out that they would never trigger that condition because until there was, um, unless there were tamper-evident forensic-assigned evidence capture, in these devices that lacked any sort of logging whatsoever, you would never have evidence of harm. You just have, you know, diabetics die of too much or too little insulin. It's absorbed by the body in hours, not yeah. days. So they don't even show up on an autopsy. So, we really pushed hard, and early on, they put that into their pre-market guidance. So between the pre-market and post-market, those five primitives are in place. They don't make these things unhackable, but it means that we'll have more evidence or tampering, tamper evidence when these things go awry. 
And to your point about an attack in the wild, that's a different pathway through the postmarket guidance, which is called an uncontrolled vulnerability, and those instantaneously get a recall. So an attack in the wild doesn't go through this 30, 60-day uh, carrot-shaped stick. It, it's called an uncontrolled vulnerability, and once confirmed, it is uh, it gets an immediate corrective action. So do you want to speculate on uh, – Justine has said that uh, um, their research has turned up a lot of vulnerabilities, and some of the independent review of, uh, suggested that those could be fatal uh, vulnerabilities in uh, what is now Abbott Labs' uh, uh, implant. Uh, I, and uh, that was announced sometime, I think, in September of last year. Um, it's not been addressed, um, a, and so it's obviously way off whatever timeline we were talking about, uh, uh, and yet those things are being installed every day uh, by people who could just as easily choose, I don't know, some other companies, uh, Medtronics or something, uh, um, uh, implant, which might not have the same problem. I, 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 this strikes me as sort of surprising, a surprising amount of willingness to keep consumers in the dark. And I, I don't quite understand what, what would motivate the FDA to regulate in that way. So I, I'm certainly not going to speak for these organizations in any official capacity, um, but I do get a lot of access to health delivery organizations and physicians and cardio uh, folks through the, the task force interviews we do for this uh, congressional task force. And what was surprising to me is you know, whenever – they volunteered. I certainly asked, but several, I you know, that use that or recommend that or that continue using it. You know, I asked why would you continue using that or have you ceased using that? And um, you know, the the answers aren't su- super surprising when you hear it. It's uh, that there's a lot of decisions to go into which device is best for that patient, which device is most familiar, which device is. Um, no, yeah, but you know, only life, but, I, I, you know. I hear you, Josh, but really, I, you know. Oh, I'm not, I'm not, def- I'm not yeah. defending it. I was, I was, I was taken aback by some of the, the logic that goes into this. And that's one of the reasons I want it super clear that there's still, um, you know, unconfirmed, un, excuse me, um, unfixed elements of what was at least alleged. And one of the things I've encouraged is that Perhaps there needs to be another status between no news from the regulator and a recall, something called under investigation or some middle ground that could be actual position. And I think there's room for um, discussion there for sure. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. A little bit more transparency around that I think would be welcomed by physicians and patients alike. All right. Well, I'm, I, we're um, running, we're oh, running low on time, and I oh, know you guys wanted to talk a little bit about uh, <laughs> the, the the future or any any other topics that you want to bring up. But I just wanted wanted to flag the fact that uh, uh, we're starting to come to the end of the uh, period. Well, I, I think sure. you know what happened this time is you know happened. People knew what they knew when they knew it. Um, I think what's probably more constructive, and I don't know when or where to have these conversations, I'm really eager to have some of that honest post-mortem. I'm not sure when and how these lawsuits will end. Uh, I hope they go away soon uh, so we can focus on, you know, in the future, if people have things, what's the, what are the best practices for the fastest cures? My big fear, which we didn't really get to, is, you know, were there, um, you know, material weaknesses in these things, uh you know, sometimes it will require surgery to fix. Sometimes it will require uh, going under anesthesia. Those things carry risk as well. So, 
you know, I have a personal high degree of confidence in Justine's skills and, and a lot of the people who did the, the follow-on research as well. So my hunch is these are legitimate, uh, highly uh, accurate findings. Uh, but what we want to get to is something where, regardless of who introduces a finding, that there's a, a swift and accurate and safely communicated uh, way for people to assess risk to future implants, but also what do you do? Do you want to rush everyone and do open-heart surgery? Um, so I, I'm hoping we can do more collaborative, high-trust maneuvers um, instead of focus on who did what, when, where, how, why. Um, let's figure out the safest path as a group for future disclosures that, that uh, ultimately get us to that from the current state of device security to the desired state, uh, which is trustworthy, dependable, resilient, survivable, maintainable, all those good things we all want. Justine, last word. Dick Cheney, was that an explant or was that an over-the-air update? I don't know. Nobody's answered that question yet, but I'd be interested to know the answer. Well, and, and, and Cheney is a, is, a, is a good example of why the doctor can't make this call by himself. You know, uh, only exactly. the patient. Only because the patient. that's one of the many variables. Yeah, yep. exactly. Uh, so uh, so increased transparency would be my, my number one takeaway from this. Um, we, I think that we really do need to consider whether we're underestimating um, the ability of these physicians and these, these patients to make sensible decisions given most, if not all, of the facts. I don't think patients need to understand the ins and outs of you know, remote memory manipulation and implants, but to understand the potential scenarios and the potential weaknesses of these devices would be helpful. Okay, well, um, and, and I will issue a, um, an open invitation to uh, the FDA to come on and talk about their policies as well, because I think uh, I, I've, uh, I've made some assumptions about their policies. And Josh has done a good job of defending them without uh, taking on the role of defending them, but I'd be happy to hear what they think their policy ought to evolve toward. Uh, uh, so, uh, Josh Corman, uh, Justine Bone, uh, thank you so much for uh, a very civil and informative conversation. And also to Stephen Heifetz and Phil Kindra for Kinda for uh, um, their expertise as well. This is the uh, Cyber Law Podcast, uh, and we're open to feedback. Send us your questions, suggestions, or interviews. Uh, candidates uh, for uh, uh, interviewing uh, to Cyber Law Podcast at steptoe.com. Uh, give us a good review on iTunes or other podcast aggregators. Uh, uh, and if uh, we end up get, bringing on a guest that you have suggested. We will send you a highly coveted Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mug, complete with logo, which we would have given to Justine and Josh if they had shown up, but uh, we had to do this remotely. Uh, so uh, uh, no mug for you yet, uh, Josh. Uh, Justine will bring you back uh, when you're in town. Uh, <laughs> Thanks very much for having me, Stuart. Okay, this has been episode 157 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we're going to have Nick Weaver, uh, who's a senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute at UC Berkeley and a provocative and profound thinker on cybersecurity and intelligence. We'll have Michael Schmidt, who's a professor of public international law uh, at uh, three different universities, uh, who will be talking about the uh, uh, Talon 2.0 and the law 
law of war in the cyber. Uh, and then on April 6th, uh, later this week, we're all gathering for a live taping extravaganza with our partners uh, at uh, the Lawfare Podcast and Rational Security. It'll be the third annual Triple Entente Beer Summit uh, uh, at Old Engine 12 Restaurant on 1626 North Capitol Street, Northwest. Uh, it'll run between 6 and 8. So uh, we look forward to seeing you there, and we look forward to holding forth with more liquor in us than we usually have on these podcasts. Uh, we hope you'll join us uh, for that and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 